0: This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Access a vast selection of global fixed-income securities at Interactive Brokers Bond Marketplace. Search their deep availability of over 1 million bonds globally and use IBKR's bond search tool to compare available yields against those of other brokers. Interactive Brokers has no markups or built-in spreads and low, fully transparent commissions on bonds. IBKR displays the highest bids and lowest offers received from the electronic venues they access. In addition, clients can interact with each other by placing bids and offers online to execute their trades. Learn why Benzinger rated Interactive Brokers their best online broker for bonds for two consecutive years. Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. Visit ibkr.com bonds. That's ibkr.com
1: bonds. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success.
0: And all of a sudden a pivot and a rally to boot. 10-year treasury is now sub 4%. Oil hits technical support, bounces then stalls. Some thoughts on what's next and our guest today, my good friend Med Faber from Cambria Investment Management. All this and much more on episode number 847 of the Disciplined Investor podcast. When they're keeping rates down, it turns tail just out of nowhere. And what they said is, uh, what was it, three weeks ago, very hawkish into all of a sudden, now we have this dovish tilt. In fact, I, I would go so far as saying an uber-dovish tilt of what's going on right now from the speech they gave last week. The rate hike not happening. And the fact now they're talking about rate cuts, pretty amazing change, you know. And, and, and you know, they say, well, they, what do they say? They say, don't fight the Fed. They say, don't fight the Fed. Of course, they say that in a narrative sense when they are desirous of buying stocks into a declining interest rate environment that the Fed is trying to loosen monetary policy. But, you know, don't fight. The Fed goes right out the window when the Fed is actually tightening. You know what? Uh, Okay, You know, there's still great opportunities and bargains out there and valuations are low. So just one more of the narratives. And boy, do we have narratives. We have so many narratives that are out there. Uh, Listen, hello to all of the the new listeners out there. And I know I have a lot of them because each week I get a note saying, hello, you know, thanks a lot. First time listener. I got a lot of calls up, um, you know, from people. Matter of fact, this week I had some interesting calls from people that have been listening to the show for years and years and years and decided that it was time to pick up the phone and talk to me about a little bit of their personal situation. I thought it was really interesting. Um, You know, I think that's great because it's, it's maybe not time right now that you need some help. And what we're doing is building the education, the foundation for your financial security and understanding of financial markets for now and also for time to come. But at the same time, what's happening is that, you know, there may be something that comes into play. You retire, you get an inheritance, you know, whatever's going on, you need to plan for college education, a wedding, whatever it may be. So uh, a couple of things. things. Uh, we have a great lineup today. I'm very excited about our, our guest that's coming on and hopefully you took my comments and thoughts and Dare say quotes italics strikeouts advice, which we can't give, of course, on the show about the potential for a year-end rally. We talked about that since, I don't know, back in October, I guess. You know, the opportunity that was existing and 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 the potential for a rally to ensue. And what's really interesting of um what's going on is that the rally has been not only nonstop, it's been incredible. There's a lot of people that were short the market and maybe were fighting. Um, or was or long going for the ride with the Fed, right? Where the Fed was hawkish, but now they've turned dovish, and that just blows that out tremendously. Uh, so, welcome everybody. We're closing into uh, the end of 2023, and I mean, what a year it was, right? I mean, just what an incredible year in terms of uh, differential from 2022. And now we're seeing this real ramp in some sectors and stocks that were laggards throughout 2023 really start to turn around. And, and do some incredible moves. Utilities came right up to their 50-day, and I believe their 200-day moving average, which is converging if you look at a chart, and then backed off a bit. And we're talking about 20% return for the quarter for utilities. Small caps are up like 20% since the lows in October, which is exactly how 2022 ended, if you remember what happened in that year, just a year ago. The low in a down year that dipped down and came in on exactly October 12th, 2022. Okay, well, that was that was October 12th. And this year, okay, it was a, it was a up year up until that, up until that point into September-October where things started rolling over a little bit, and then we had the situation that on October 26th that low was hit. And small caps and the Nasdaq 100 and the S&P 500 all dipped right into that crevice right there on the same day. Not exactly the same but sort of the same. The playbook is not too different. You know, back then, the Fed was still hawkish. Way back, way back on October 26th. So we're starting to see right now those overbought, oversold levels start to kick in again. We're starting to see that. You know, even with um, small caps up 20% in the last however long since the low, and uh, you know on, the, on TV you see people talking about the RSI. The relative strength index. And when it's high or low, and usually you look at a 70 as the top end and close to about a 30 on the low end. And these are ranges for overbought and oversold. You know, it gets below that 30, it's like, hey, look at that. The RSI is really showing this. And that's showing us that there may be a buying opportunity here. And when the RSI gets above, they start talking about, well, you know, the bulls, their discussion. "Eh, It's not such a big deal. It's just a rally mode. But you know, the reality is you can't have it both ways like everybody tries to have it. And what we're seeing right now is that the RSI is 79 on the S&P 500, 79 on the small caps. And those, those are high numbers. Those are definitely, there's no question that those are high numbers. And that's something that really needs to be considered, thinking that maybe our valuation is getting a little stretched or, you know, is, is markets getting a little bit giddy. There's 370 S&P 500 companies now above their 200-day moving average. Volume is up. So that could be what's considered a start of a new bull market or a continuation of a prior bull. So that's good as we're seeing that there's a broadening of new highs. Uh, 380 for the week, the best reading since the summer of 2021. So that's, I think, uh, a good piece of information right there. So, So it all looks good, right? You know, we have a Goldilocks situation. You'll start hearing that discussion about what's going on, the Goldilocks, you know, where pricing is coming in a little bit. Oil prices are pretty good. The consumer's able to spend. Got a few more bucks in their wallet. The wealth effect, which is boosting assets, is really great because what's happening is that we're seeing that uh, uh, people are feeling a lot better. We'll see probably that stoke inflation, in my opinion, particularly in the services area. Um, So, you know, the question, are we ahead of our skis? I don't know. For some areas of the markets, for some areas of the market seems like it is. The idea that three cuts are coming—that's interesting. Seems a bit much if you ask me. And you ask a few of the other Fed officials that came out on Friday talking about it. You know, inflation getting back to normal, two percent. Yeah, but price is still high. And I know we fixate on inflation. The Fed does, in particular. The Fed also looks at the economy. You have to question. You know, if they're talking about three rate cuts or so, one hundred fifty basis points into two thousand twenty-four, maybe even a few more in 2025 what are they seeing? And we're talking about a soft landing here. Oh no. There's no landing involved at all. It's just a continuation of where we are. Home builders at an all-time high. I mean even prices yeah, they've adjusted on homes but not that much. We still have a supply issue. And this market rally, I mean like I said, going to push the wealth effect, push prices higher in some areas, making people feel confident and good about the future. That that's a big issue right now. So Let's put all this behind us and uh, not only look at f- this discussion about what's going on and what's happening where we are now, but how about we start to think about what's ahead and what we have to look forward to? And who better to bring into this conversation as our next guest? So, um, you know, always entertaining, always good conversation, never lacking something to say. So, let's get to that discussion right now. And as promised, our guest today is Meb Faber. He's a co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. management, And uh, he has a long history of managing ETFs and separate accounts. And he's the host of the Meb Faber Show podcast. He's authored all sorts of white papers and books. He's a speaker and writer. This is a guy you want to listen to. And that's why I want to have him back. Since 2019, uh, I feel like I'm Johnny Carson. Welcome back, Meb Faber. Hey, Meb. Good to be back,
1: buddy. I'm I'm sad the listeners didn't get to hear all of your fishing secrets that you gave to me before the podcast started. <laughs> we can, maybe maybe you can come on my show and divulge all these secrets cuz that uh right. that's that's definitely a new year's resolution to join you on some of these uh jaunts in uh warm waters. Yeah,
0: good stuff. A lot of fun. Just it's it's, it's great that bonding and that that time spent on the the, the wide open seas. I, I yeah, we got to do that. Let's go back though. I want to ask you a question I don't think I've asked you before. Uh and and, and I think probably a lot of people want to know is what? How did you get into this business?
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> how far do you want to go back? Um, take take it back. Start origin story. You know, um, I was a engineer and biotech guy by undergrad. So I studied biomedical engineering. I was very caught up in genomics. This I graduated university at the peak of my favorite bubble, which was the internet bubble in 2000. And a lot of people don't recall in the younger cohort, but we do that. It wasn't just internet stocks, but biotech stocks also were going totally nuts, partially due to all the, um, hoopla around the human genome getting sequenced for the first time by not just the government, but also Craig Venter's Celera genomics mm-hmm. and. I mean, I was, I look back and this whole meme stonk era was like a playbook from my undergraduate. I had professors that would straight up pause class and go <laughs> check their stock quotes. Like not a joke, you know, uh, yeah. they were buying IPOs, trading stocks. So it had a very familiar feel to me. I didn't think I'd ever see it again in my lifetime. So I was um, a bit astonished when February 2021 uh, was was going on. And so I was always, always interested in investments. I had a stack of annual reports. I was that kid, stack annual reports by my bed, uh, but also interested in biotech and engineering. I had an older brother, like most of us do, that loved to give me advice. And he said, Meb, before you go back for your PhD, maybe take a year or two off and and earn some money. And so I had opportunity to work at a biotech mutual fund while going to grad school Uh, for biomedical engineering. And that only lasted a year for two reasons. One is because the fund was down, I don't know, 60%, whatever whatever the biotech stocks were down post internet bubble bursting 80%. Um, And second, because my interest in grad school was put on the back burner, because I thought these financial markets were too fascinating. And the hobby Uh, has become the career and vice versa. I I gravitated a little bit more towards the quantitative side, worked for a commodity trading advisor emerging, which then kind of went nowhere and then moved to Los Angeles Mm. to start Cambria. Uh, It's like 17 years ago ish. Um, Our oldest ETFs are now a decade old. I don't feel that old, but it been in the game for a while. And, um, we just opened a new office here in Manhattan Beach. So if uh, any listeners want to come say hi in the real world, uh, our door is always open. We got over 150,000 shareholders now. So maybe not all at the same wow. time, wow. you guys, but if you want to come have coffee or lunch or a beer, <laughs> let me know.
0: <laughs> so so you talk about the new office or the office. What inspires you to, to to get up and get into that office every day?
1: We got a really fun crew. Um, and, uh, it's nice because I can look out and see the other ocean. I'm looking at the Pacific ocean Mm -hmm. over here. Water's a lot colder, but a beautiful day. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of cross currents going on in the world of investing. We can talk about the business side and we can talk about the investing side because there's, there's a lot going on on both, but on the investing side, it's always fascinating It's never a dull day. So, for example, if you just look at my post-graduation career, so 20-plus years, 23 years now, we always say financial market returns are extreme. And crazier stuff is always going to happen in the future. And probably the biggest crazy markets sort of environment to me We've seen booms. We've seen busts. We've seen markets go to zero. We've seen inflation, hyperinflation in other countries. We've seen it all. But most of that's happened before. The long extended period of negative interest rates and sovereigns around the world, that to me was pretty weird. Oh, oh it was unbelievably weird. I mean,
0: the, it, the, neg- the negative interest rate thing on its own, it's like it's, it, it's you know, like watching every – you're walking down the street and all of a sudden people are starting to walk backwards. You know, and you're like, what's what's happening? I don't understand what's going on. And then then they normalized it, right? Ah, you know,
1: this is what we do. It's like the movie Inception or Tenet or one of these things where it's just like the upside down. And so, you know, that's what makes investing. I mean, look, we only have probably, let's call it 200 years, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much of investing history to work from. And we think it's probably the most important thing any investor can do is look back in history to at least get a base case but then have the full understanding that the future will always be different and your largest drawdown will even be greater. So, uh, we kind of use the history as a guide, but then look at things and take a step back and say, what the heck is going on? And I think February 21 was really, we got a Twitter thread called what in tarnation that has a laundry list of just insane things going on in that time. Seems like things are a little more normal today, but who knows what the future is going to hold.
0: It's funny because investors, I think, always are looking at, you know, the very short term, what's right in front of their face and all the big concerns. And I was talking to somebody today and we're talking about how, you know, let, 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 let's spend some time and talk about all the reasons why we shouldn't be investing today. Right. Which that conversation can be any day. For someone who's looking yeah. for excuses and reasons why not to, you know, why, why actually not to invest. That, that's kind of where it is but you know when, when the, I think that the big mistake and the problem that investors have is is being so short-sighted Man, let me throw this to you what, what what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes investors make
1: so I love what you just said and one of my favorite charts or tables that gets published on occasion is the long run, equity curve, the stock market back to 1900 or even 1800s. And overlaid is all the crazy events that have happened each year, you know, um, that would have been fantastic reasons to liquidate and move on. Wars, plagues, all sorts of depressions. And yet over that time, uh, you've made generational wealth if you can buy and hold these investments for long periods. I mean, the, 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 compounding math, I love to just tell people all the time. I say, you hold something that returns 10% for 25 years, you're going to 10X your money. And if you hold it for 50 years, you're going to 100X your money. And to me, that is astonishing. And so uh, I've always wanted to do a coffee table book that just kind of has each year and whatever terrible event happened that year, but then looking forward to the 10, 20 year returns. I actually want to use the global stock market. I don't think Using the U.S. as one particular market um, would be my preference. I would like to use global investing because, uh, you know, the U.S. is only one country and there's a lot of other investable countries out there. And if you go back to 1900, the U.S. was only about 15%, I believe, of the market cap total. And it's 60 now. And back then, I think the biggest was U.K., around 25%. And it's probably, I don't know, five now, three, two. Yeah, much smaller Uh, than it was. Much smaller.
0: But that's something I want to come back to, mm -hmm. you you know, the whole idea of international diversification. Um, But before we do that, I want to talk about, um, I want to ask you about factors and the idea of diversification. But hold that thought for a second because I want to mention something. And I want to talk about interactive brokers. Interactive brokers is your gateway to the world's markets. Interactive brokers offers commissions starting at zero for U.S.-listed stocks and ETFs enhanced price execution via IB smart routing and access to their powerful trader workstation, web, mobile, and API trading platforms. Join clients from over 200 countries and territories to invest globally in stocks, options, futures, Forex, bonds, and funds from a single integrated account at the lowest cost at IBKR.com. Go to IBKR.com. All right, so talking about factors diversification, uh the idea of 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 non-overlay, right? So, so, how many people have you ran into in life? You know, potential clients, people you look at their portfolios that think they're diversified but they have the same basic investments over and over and over again that give them no diversification.
1: We call it mutual fund salad where someone has 10, 20, 50 funds in their portfolio, but they're all the same fund with just different names and different exposures. But a good example would be if you had your entire portfolio in large cap growth, large cap value, large cap core, mid cap growth, mid cap value, mid cap core, um, small cap value, small cap, on and on and on. And so um, if you were to do the laundry list of mistakes, we wrote an old paper called the investing pyramid. You remember the old... uh, food pyramid from yeah. our youth that yeah. told you to eat a bunch of frosted flakes and pasta and muffins is the base core of your yes. food and avoid things like protein and fats. Um, yes. that was well,
0: the good old days, um, the
1: good old days, <laughs> the good old days. Well, we've learned over time, you know, that that's evolved and it's probably inverted from then. And, and looking back on kind of investing, it, it's probably the same thing. But if you were to say, what's your base today? Well, the base would be not, do something really stupid. So to have an investing plan, um, hopefully even write it down, which almost no one does. Uh, We talk to so many investors and we say, do you have an investing plan? Or it doesn't have to be hard. It can be on an index card. It could be on a three bullet points, but most don't. And the problem with that is you have events that happen, COVID, GFC, on and on, Um, not just for the bad times, but also the good times, you know, markets like this year where they're ripping right up. And if you don't have a plan, your emotions creep in. And we all know that greed, fear, envy, all those can fracture any well-laid investment idea. So having a plan, roughly sticking it to it. um, And then for us, and we tend to get a little non-consensus here, so feel free to to interject. Mm -hmm. You know, I think having global exposure to three main assets to me is the base case and it roughly mimics the global portfolio. So you got to have some global stocks, you got to have some global bonds and some global real assets and real assets could be REITs, real estate, they could be commodities, they could be tips, they could be gold, uh, farmland, which we love. And as long as you have some of all three, you're probably going to do okay. You're probably going to be just fine. You should also be mindful of taxes, be mindful of fees, and then, you know, that you're kind of like the football reference, like you're getting like 90% of the way there, you're like down to the 10 yard line now. So you can still make additional edits like value investing and trend following other things. But in general, having those main ingredients uh, are, are a fantastic starting point, maybe the first three or four layers of the pyramid, but not immolating yourself and doing really dumb things is certainly number one, which is probably the hardest thing to do.
0: So first of all, I have to just go back to farmland. How do you get exposure to farmland?
1: Well, you probably wouldn't if you weren't born into it, which I was. I come from a farming family, my dad's side in Kansas and Nebraska. So ah. if you run into any Fabers, I'm probably related to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but if you look at farmland as an asset class, so the, the global market portfolio. So if you buy all the public assets all in the world, um, it's roughly half stocks and bonds, and roughly half U.S. half X U.S. and that's a great portfolio. What's missing from that? Um, the two big assets are single family housing around the world. That's hard to invest in mm-hmm. globally, and then also farmland investing because a lot of it's privately held, or even more modern days. Bill Gross, uh, not Bill Gross, um, um, Bill Gates, uh, but a lot of other individuals and corporations uh, certainly own a lot of farmland, but it's still a ton of individual small families. Um, Farmland's hard to get exposure to. There's a couple REITs. If I wasn't doing what I was doing, I would, uh, I think I would go launch some farmland REITs. There's certainly private funds that do it. We've held, um, there's some new online platforms like Acre Trader, which I think are really interesting uh, and have, uh, have a fract they allow you to fractionalize certain farms. So I have a fractional ownership in a farm on there. I mean, direct ownership, which uh, I do, um, but am probably slowly in the process of liquidating. Uh, it's like real estate investing for me, which is a, it's a huge pain in the butt. Yeah, real real estate investing is sort of my actual direct ownership is my all time nightmare. Um, well, so it, from, from
0: what we do, it's the the antithesis of what we do, right? You know, which is make decisions, make good decisions, move in and out, and all that. You can make decisions on on direct real estate investing, but forget about getting in and out. You yeah. get in, but you know it's it's a whole process. It's not liquid, and process, so. You know. y-
1: You know, farmland investing in some of these illiquid investments, as long as you know they're illiquid and get into it um, with that knowledge ahead of time, I think a lot of people that have gotten in trouble with the Blackstone fund, uh, real estate fund, where they're, um, you know, locked in and don't have liquidity. If you knew that going into it, that's fine. But if you knew it, didn't know it going into it, it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm totally okay with the illiquidity on some of these investments. In fact, it may be a feature, not a bug, but you just have to be fully aware of it and, and, you know, pay attention to that. So
0: you mentioned international, and this is something I know you, because I, I follow what you talk about, and it's been a big um, push for you and something that you mentioned. You mentioned earlier that, you know, this may not be consensus and I may have some pushback on it. And I think what you were talking about probably was not about the farmland per se, but about Maybe the international side, right? Because there has been a chorus at the beginning of each year or the end of each year that that basically is that that comes across and starts singing and talking, and this is the year for emerging markets. This is the year for non-U.S. And by the way, I, I'm 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 I have some agreement with that. I I believe that there is a uh, valuation differential that's extraordinarily attractive and very compelling for the international side. But the question still remains that it's been so long since we got those great years in EM, right? I mean, I remember there was, there was a couple of big ones that it, it's almost very disturbing. And and particularly with, with China being a big part of the EM universe, if you're going to be indexing or at least uh, along for the ride on the EM benchmark, so is this it? Are we there? Are we finally at the point that we are going to have have a, uh, uh, you know, a, a explosive year in, in EM or, or in XUS?
1: Okay, there's, there's a lot wrapped in here. Uh, as you know, um, I'm going to try to hit on a couple of these topics. Uh, I think it's important to always disclose your priors, listeners. And so, you know, it's a crazy stat, but roughly half of all public mutual fund and ETF owners, uh, managers don't own any of their own fund, which to me is crazy. Hmm. So I invest all my public assets into our fund. And I actually wrote a post uh, disclosing how I invest my own money, which you can find on the internet. Um, But but I also wanna say our largest fund, which is almost half of our assets and about a billion dollars is a US only, long only stock fund. So what I'm about to say about foreign, let it be known that uh, it would be probably way better for me to just, you know, um, pound the table for U.S. stocks ad nauseum uh, <laughs> than talk about our um, our foreign funds and strategies. I mean, look, here is the deal. Someone said to me the other day, say, Meb, international investing hasn't worked in forever." And I said, "Hold on, let me qualify what you said. What you really mean when you say that is, you say international investing for Americans hasn't worked." since the global financial crisis international investing for the other 44 countries in the world of the 45 that are really investable has worked spectacularly because if you're an investor in russia or china or brazil or uk or france or germany and you do all these countries and you invested internationally globally you would have had far better returns than if you had invested just in your own market. So you're using a sample size of one, listeners, um, if you say international investing hasn't worked. But if you go for the full, we've done some fun articles this year. One was called, what if you invested in no US stocks? Um, And you can actually build a doppelganger portfolio that looks just like the US stock returns with no US stocks. Mm. No one believes this when I tell them this, by the way. some people call this the donut portfolio so if you owned everything else but just not us stocks so reits and corporate bonds and emerging bonds and emerging stocks but but going to the specific us versus xus and emerging over time it's a coin flip so us versus xus over time it's about 50-50 which does better now the us has done better than most countries for a really long time, but not all. So I think Australia and South Africa beat the U.S. for the last 100 years. Nobody's advocating put all their money in Australia. Maybe my Aussie friends do. Mm-hmm. But um, but if you look at all the research, um, here's a fun stat for you. You know, If you look at the 2010s, U.S. stock market stomped foreign. But the inverse was true the prior decade. So foreign and emerging creamed the U.S., U.S. beat equal weight or GDP weight of the world in the 90s. But before that, you have to go back to the 1920s. So what is that, Hmm. 70, 80 years of um, underperformance versus equal weight or GDP weight? So to me, looking at the long arc of history and all the crazy stuff that's happened in markets, I mean, look at Japan. Dude, (laughs) Japan, gone nowhere for 30 years. And it's like, it's not some tiny emerging market. It's the second or third largest GDP uh, market in the world. And it was the largest stock market in the world in the 1980s, uh, bigger than the US. So to me, it's um, it's always thoughtful to diversify, to own uh, stocks all around the world. And even if you're going to say, you know what, I think the US is the best. I want to put most of my money in the US So the market cap weight of 60%. That's still 10 times more in the US than I think any other stock market. So to me, that's already a pretty massive overweight, uh, but it, it's the starting point now. Almost no one owns foreign and emerging, and I can give you the really bullish case there if we choose to go there, but to me, um, diversifying globally is uh, is a no-brainer.
0: I, I think just for the very nature of looking at, you know, when we look at portfolio construction and and just simply looking at what the benefits are longer term, not, not one year, two year, but longer term on uh, not, not necessarily muting, but, but really tamping down overall risk. You know, I talk with people about my flower garden theory, the whole idea that, you know, you don't want to just have, you know, one type of flower in a, in a flower garden because it will, it will bloom and it'll look beautiful for, you know, a week, a month, three months, and then it dies out and you have nothing. You want to have a selection of roses and Annuals, perennials. You want to have evergreens that are always green, so that any given time of the year something's blooming. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be just radiant and fantastic, but you're going to have things in there that are going to fill in the 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 the, the areas that are just uh, would be dirt otherwise. And that's how a portfolio, very simplistic view of this, uh, could be created. And and part of that has to be uh, outside U.S. if you want to have an equity exposure. It's just as simple as that.
1: I think it's hard for investors to be asset class agnostic. They always want to be cheering for something. You got the gold bugs with gold at near all time highs. You got the crypto—I don't know what you call them—blockheads, the crypto (laughs) friends. You got the um, the dividend investors. You got the aristocrats. All these things. But look, every asset has its time in the sun, time in the shade. You cannot find an asset that hasn't been absolutely super stinky at some point in its lifetime. And so cobbling these all together to me is the whole Holy grail of investing, where you come up with various asset class and and return streams that end up with a much smoother ride and all the evidence in history points to that being true um, on a diversified basis. But people love to concentrate in one country or one asset class. And usually uh, it doesn't work out for them.
0: One of the things that you talk about quite often, and and, and you've, you've, you've really, hit hard on many different uh, uh, I would say endowments and uh, you've challenged them and said why are they paying this kind of fee why aren't you doing that I think you've said hey you know what I'll do it for this little amount whatever it is right but but also you've you've challenged the whole mutual funded ETF differential so one of the things I think is is the idea of, of the structure, which I want you to talk about, right? The differential between an ETF and a mutual fund from an investor standpoint. But also, um, now that we have the advent of more active versus passive ETFs, how does that change or enhance your argument?
1: Yeah. So if you look at a globally diversified portfolio, we wrote a book called Global Asset Allocation. It's free to download online. Um we need to update it. I'm committing to doing that in Q1. But um, this portfolio looked at all the various allocation models, permanent portfolio, risk parity, endowment style, 60-40, the Buffett portfolio, on and on. And the good news is they all made good money over the last 50 years. But in any given year, there was pretty divergent returns. So there could be a spread of 10 20 30% between the best and the worst. But on, over time, they all did a good job. They took different paths to get there. But on average, they did a good job. Now, one of the challenges on following those portfolios, of course, is um, people love to chase returns and chase what's working now. And this is true, not just for individuals. You know, It's also true for institutions. And I love to poke fun at CalPERS. We wrote an article called Should CalPERS Be Managed by a Robot that said basically you CalPERS could have saved all the time and money and effort and drama. My gosh, they've had like five CIOs in the past uh, 10 years, they could have done away with all this drama and just done a buy and hold strategic allocation portfolio. And it would have done just as well. Same thing for the largest hedge hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater's, all weather. Um, and so the takeaway to me is not that these guys are so dumb, even though that's, I think, what i I tend to come across on social media, because I like (laughs) to pick on them. But it's just that investing is hard and coming up with a strategic allocation and sticking to it when it's underperforming. This has been some of this past 10 years has been some of the worst underperformance in history for a diversified portfolio versus the S&P 500. And so if you actually look at the S&P 500 back for the past 100 years, there's been four periods where it's compounded for over 10 years rolling at 15% a year. It was the roaring 20s, the nifty 50s, the internet bubble, and then whatever you call this COVID meme stock mania. And eventually those times end, and then there's been periods where on the backside of those that U.S. stocks for 10 years compounded zero. Now, that's usually a good buying opportunity, but the, the way to say this is the good times follow the bad and vice versa. But they don't last forever. And we've had a pretty exceptional period. And if you're a financial advisor, you know, this may be a little PTSD right now, but sitting down with clients in the quarterly meeting and say, why do we own real estate? Why do we own bonds? Why do we own foreign stocks? Why do we own commodities? Why do we own anything other than SPY? And, um, you know, that's something that uh, has, has been the case for many years, although this year has been more of a T-bills and chill. People are already really excited about the 5% uh, they're getting in, in bonds. Really, but, really excited, by the way. Seriously, um, I think they are. Yeah, I do too. And uh, now, so ignore the fact on that bonds have declined and they actually have done well this past couple of weeks. We were almost on track for only the second time in 100 years that the long bond has been down three years in a row. It happened in the late 70s and early 80s. And I thought it was going to happen this year, which is extremely rare. We wrote about this in my first book, The Ivy Portfolio, usually a fantastic time to be buying a big asset when it's down three years in a row, like U.S. stocks or long bonds, small industries could go like five, six years in a row. But but on average, usually the big ones don't go down that much. Um, but it looks like we're gonna. It's gonna be close. It's it's uh, gonna be a photo finish at the end of the year because right now we're down right around flat on the long bond. Mm. Um, so ignoring the declines, you have this five percent yield again for the first time in forever, which will impact behavior, I think, and we're already seeing it in the mutual uh, money market funds but there are two giant opportunities that i do see uh, i'm happy to talk about um, on going forward or we can continue on this path.
0: Go, go, go ahead i'm, I'm, I'm all ears
1: <laughs> you can not uh, i got my finger on the finger on the button. lead yeah
0: i got my finger on the you buy know, button go ahead so
1: you know market cap weighting was an amazing invention but the the big achilles heel with market cap weighting is at times particularly when prices have gone up a lot so we talked about the s&p going up 15% a year for a decade is that the price in the PE equation is the markets tend to get expensive. And I don't think we're in a bubble right now. I don't think it's as bad as 2021 or 1999. But on average, market cap weighted stocks are expensive. People love to talk about the MAG7 or whatever these giant mega cap companies are. Um, But on average, US stocks, as measured by uh, a portfolio, we, we do shareholder yield, which is stocks that are cheap not over leveraged, and then are distributing a lot of their cash through dividends and net buybacks, they're trading at some of the largest discounts we've ever seen, uh, which is pretty amazing. So there's a lot of stocks out there that are trading at single digit PE multiples that have great growth numbers uh, that are high quality and distributing double digit cash uh, Mm -hmm. distributions through yield in the US and also in foreign developed and emerging um, it's interesting when you look at, and so we have a fund that does it in each of those geographies. If you look at the difference in the funds, people say, yeah, Meb, but you don't have that much in tech in the US. And I say, well, part of that is because these tech companies have just been issuing a ridiculous amount of stock-based compensation this cycle. So the amount of dilution people have been getting in some of the names, not all of them, of course. I mean, we owned Apple for almost, um, I think, a decade in this in our biggest strategy. But you're seeing a lot of really interesting tech names in emerging markets. And so a lot of the semiconductor stocks we were talking about, um, one of our largest holdings in our emerging market strategy, I think is like a a triple bagger this year. Um, But a lot of the basket of these emerging market companies are starting from a much lower valuation base than they are in the U.S. So there's a lot of opportunity around the world. Most of the countries are cheap um, to downright screaming cheap. There's a few that are expensive, in the U.S. being one of them, I think, on average. But I think you don't have to accept asset classes pre-packaged, right? You can uh, choose what, what the famous phrase. What is it, a uh, a market of stocks?
0: Uh, is, is it a stock a, a market of stocks or is it a stock a market? Not a stock
1: market, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's lots of thousands of stocks to choose. You don't have to choose market cap weighting. So we see a lot of interesting opportunity we're pretty excited about in not just the U.S., but also foreign developed and emerging. Now foreign developed and emerging, the market caps are cheaper than the U S but if you look underneath the surface under the waves, all three areas has have some pretty fantastic stocks uh, out there.
0: Let's get back. Cause we skipped over the advantages, disadvantages, differentials and reasons, reasonings between mutual funds and ETFs. We talked about some of it, but I'm talking about for the average
1: investor. So, these are just structures right um they're actually pretty similar structures and i'm i'm structure agnostic in general mutual funds have been around forever but when the etf came to market um it had some unique features back in the late 90s in the us canada before that where it was exchange traded you could um on average, because they're exchange traded and didn't have to go through these platforms, they could, on average, and the early ones were all index-based, they came in cheaper than mutual funds because you don't have a lot of the historical conflicts of interest like 12B1 fees and front-end loads and back-end loads and yada, yada, pay-to-play arrangements. Um, ETFs, on average, were cheaper. But the big one that most people tend to ignore has been in taxable accounts, ETFs were a absolutely monster invention, because they essentially allow you to um, postpone any capital gains to when you sell the fund. So if you look at like SPY, for example, it's never done a capital gains distribution for going on um, 25 plus years, but how many mutual funds have we seen this year, that have the double haymaker of not only being down on the year, and having outflows, but having to do like a 20% capital gains distribution, just a, a double slap in the face. And so we've seen estimates that the ETF structure alone in taxable accounts for equities is probably a 70 basis point advantage. So 0.7%. Then you add on the fee differential between the average mutual fund, and the average, and it's not all, of course you can get Vanguard and other mutual funds for lower costs and Vanguard's a special use case, but um but on average, the ETFs have done an amazing job of democratizing investing for low cost, tax efficiency. You can buy a portfolio of ETFs for the global market portfolio today for almost 0%, Yeah, cheap. which is amazing. And, and if you add in know, short landing, it's you probably negative.
0: In. I mean, no no mm-hmm. buy or sell. But but the thing is, yeah. ETFs, the one knock you had historically, going back a little bit, so I'm, I'm bringing this back a bit, was that they were, Primarily at the time, the ones that were big, tradable, investable, volume-based, they were they were index, they were passive, right? But there's been a big change over the last number of years, not and not that many years, right? There's still a lot of things, and you're at the forefront of this also of active. Now that brings a totally different discussion, I think, into the benefits of ETFs for certain circumstances. I'm sure you agree yeah. with that, obviously.
1: Yeah, and the, you know the the whole passive active description has really lost its traditional meaning. To me, passive only meant one thing historically, which was market cap weighting. And the massive invention was actually not market cap weighting. It was what what market cap weighting allowed, which was low cost investing because market cap weighting, you don't do anything. (laughs) So you could buy a basket of stocks, not do anything and charge lower because you don't have to Uh, employ a team of portfolio managers and analysts and have to meet with IBM and, you know, um, have this massive cost structure. Now, fast forward 50 years since the 1970s, when these were invented, well, you can have passive indices that do all sorts of crazy stuff. And you can have active ones that are much cheaper than some of the passive funds. So it's become a bit more muddled. But the good news is, there's a lot of low cost options out there, uh, there's a lot of options out there that are um, not just market cap weight anymore, um, which is exciting. Now, that's also the challenge, right? You go mm-hmm. to the grocery store and there's 75 types of granola. It takes a while to to sift through, which is the one without 30 grams of sugar or <laughs> the one that you want. So yeah. ditto with ETFs. We always tell people read read past the title, get into the prospectus, because a lot of them don't do exactly necessarily what you think they do based on the name. Um, as well.
0: I want to ask uh, and, and I want to finish off our discussion in a moment with, with and I'll, and I'll put this seed out there and this little idea about your biggest surprise at 23, your outlook for 24. We could talk about Bitcoin ETF and questioning what, whether you'd have it or not, but I want to go back to the Faber show, which is a podcast that you've been doing for a long time. Um, what I just want to ask you a, a question about that. What do you get out of it? What do you get out of doing, doing the show? And what do you think your listeners get out of you doing the show for them?
1: Well, we'll do the first one. Uh, I get the most out of it of anyone. Cause I get to talk to interesting people just like you. Yeah. And I get like super fun fishing secret recommendations <laughs> that improve my personal life. Um, the beauty of hosting your own show is you get to ask anybody that you want to ask. Uh, you don't have to curate it based on anyone else. So if you're interested in investing in, Kazakhstan or farmland investing or startup investments in aerospace companies or Africa, which are all the things that we have on the show in addition to macro, then you can do it. No one's stopping you. Now, nobody may listen. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's kind of like whoever, but that's the beauty of content nowadays is that there's a show for everything. If you like extremely small batch stout, Vanilla beers that are made in Maine. There's probably a show for that, yeah. uh, which is pretty cool. So I, I think it's fun. And and for me, it, it gives sort of a look around the corner into the future on new trends and ideas that you wouldn't get exposed to uh, different points of view that we disagree with. I mean, it's crazy to talk about that, but uh, I love hearing things and ideas um, where uh, I may not agree with or ideas that I haven't been exposed to. So it's a lot of fun more than anything.
0: Yeah, I, I think that for me as well, it gives me the opportunity to, to talk to people and get a different opinion, you know, because everybody's opinion is different, as long as you set it up as not to have the Echo Chamber podcast, right? The weekly Echo Chamber podcast. And, and uh, it is really, it, I think I think for me, I, I look at it as whatever the listeners are getting out of it, that's awesome. But for me, it's it's this once a week opportunity to spend a little time just thinking about what I want to talk about and what then, then listening to someone else one-on-one uh, that I respect and, and, and believe in, you know, give, give me some great areas of advice. I just find it, you know,
1: I think, well, selfishly. I think the, the, the real killer app of the podcast, which is what you do and we try to do as well is essentially giving people without access, a look over the shoulder for two people to sit down at a pub or a coffee shop and we'd be talking inside baseball or deep in the weeds about a particular topic and people get to listen in on that conversation. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It, whatever it may be about running a triathlon, fishing in Panama, whatever, investing in uh, zero coupon bonds, but it gives you that insight that I think other people really just wouldn't have access to that kind of Frank candid conversation.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's finish it off with this. The biggest surprise of 2023, if you have one, And, um, outlook for 24.
1: Um, all right. Surprise of 23. And I don't know, surprise, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but the rip up in bond interest rates so quick, um, I think, uh, was the story of the year. Mm -hmm. Now there's also a slight disconnect because I said this on Twitter, I said, you know if stocks were down 50% people would be losing their minds i said it's it's kind of interesting that more fixed income investors you know they they mentally bucket bonds and fixed income different than they do equities and that's probably a good thing so they're actually more excited about having 5% yield despite the fact that you know some bonds are down 10 20 40 50% um and that's fascinating to me but uh but interesting enough.
0: If you buy the individual bond, you're going to get your money back with the stock. It may not come back,
1: which is why I think people think of it that way. Mm -hmm. I, I think they don't freak out as much, um, which is also an argument for always having a fixed income allocation, no matter how young or, um, growth oriented you are. Um, looking forward, I think it's going to be a story of, uh, value and quality. I think uh foreign and emerging our emerging strategy is actually our best performing strategy this year, which is interesting. Wow. Um the uh I think that story will have legs. When we look back with the fullness of time, my guess will be that 2020, 2021 was the inflection point for value. So 2020 was actually the worst year ever for value, it was worse than um 1999. Yeah, the spread right between a, value and growth you're talking about, right? Yeah, value, yep. cheap and expensive. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you've had a pretty good run since. Uh, even this year has been decent. Um, I think the inflection on US, XUS will probably look back to 2022 uh, being that inflection point. But we'll see. These stories play out over the courses of years and decades, not uh, quarters, weeks, or months. But, um, but I'm pretty excited about Particularly emerging markets, which not 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 are not even hated, people just don't even care anymore. Uh, you know, the average allocation I think rounds to zero yeah, yeah. for most investors, whereas it should be for equities probably twelve percent of the equity equity sleeve, but nobody owns any.
0: I I think that we always I, I, we maintain at least a five percent position in EM uh, and in bonds, EM bonds and EM equities. I, th- I think it's just uh, it, it's from what I've seen historically of what it can do, and and, and how again it helps that flower garden. It's just a, it's just a it's it's a it's a have to. It's a must. Because well, I, always, you I, know, I also someone, know by the way the year wanna... that I get out of it is the year that's going to go up eighty eight percent.
1: Yeah, well, the um, like I mentioned before, I mean, like we we own a semiconductor stock that's done better than Nvidia, and I always tell investors they always say, "Well, Meb, what's the catalyst? What's the catalyst?" I say, first of all, we almost never know what the catalyst is except in hindsight, but let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say uh, there's plenty, I mean, China churns out more engineering graduates like per year than America has engineers, right? Like it's just some astonishing statistics <laughs> on the scale and size of China and India. But I said, you think the chances that China and India and other countries, it could be Brazil, it could be Singapore, it could be Germany, it could be Ghana, Let's say you have some amazing scientists that develop some amazing ai applications and guess what they decide not to share it and they say we're going to use this to um, benefit our own country and industry and all of a sudden you have these exponential leaps in medicine and science Um, to me that's a very plausible potential outcome like it doesn't have to happen in the geography of just our country and so uh, a lot of these innovations and um whether it comes in you know these various fields of science or entrepreneurship, I me mean, create my, um, my angel investing journey, which is I've invested in over 300 companies at this point in the past decade, over the past five years, the majority of the investments and particularly the majority of the top 10 performing investments, and they're not all completed, but on paper and some are completed, have been XUS, mm. which is fascinating to me that you're seeing this massive innovation go on in places like Venezuela, or Pakistan. Um, so uh, I'm excited. So I think the story of the next decade or 20 years will be a resum- resumption of foreign XUS, us, but the value trade is still my number one anywhere. Yep, We went through this entire podcast and done did not, Mentioned the words trend following once.
0: Thank God, which
1: is probably what we're arguably most known for. So the word cloud, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. We'll have to do a second episode. Yeah, I
0: mean, well, because that that's that's the easy stuff, right? Isn't that? That's kind of like what everybody it, it likes to do, right? The momentum, the trend following, the you know, as it's moving. The other stuff gets, uh, I think, underplayed a lot of times. So I think it's good to flush it out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Good said. Meb
0: Faber, we're going to have all the information over on uh, the show notes for episode 847. We did 847 episodes of this show. I missed about two weeks since 2007, so uh, maybe three. But uh, anyway, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. We're going to have all the information and about, over there. It's and, been a
1: blast, bud. Right. Happy holidays. Thanks. And happy New Year's to you. you and all yours.
0: All right. Same to me. See you soon. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Discipline Investor Podcast. Always great having Faber on, just a wealth of information and knowledge and, and just really knows how to present and hopefully motivate to get you to start thinking about some of the areas that are important. And you know, when you think about this time of year, we're talking about two weeks until the end of the year. It, it's a good time of year to start thinking about planning, start thinking about, you know, why don't I sit down by myself, really, with a piece of paper, pen, a keyboard, your iPhone and notes, I don't care, however you do it. And just start thinking about all the things that you want to accomplish moving forward. Um, not all of them will be accomplished, but if you don't write them down and start by getting some things out of you from, from thinking of it to execution, it's just not going to happen because so many things go by the wayside. It's important to spend some time working on writing and and really planning. And by doing so, really helps you, um, I think, get to where you want to be. I did the same. I did that work recently. I spent a lot of time thinking about 2024, some what if, maybe kind of hopeful ideas, and some things that are definitive and definite that I am going to do throughout the next year. That's part of the process and all. Thank you for joining me this week and every week. I'm Andrew Horowitz. I'll see you again next week. Bye bye. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, The information presented is not intended to be used as the sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida, and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.